You are listening to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. My name is Nick. And I'm Roger. And today we have an incredibly special episode. We have Michael Fagan on, who's a first-year Masters of History student. Uh, Hello, Michael. Welcome to the show. Hi, nice to be here. Uh, Why don't you first of all tell us a bit what you're doing here at Western before we go into... Uh, some of the special things we're going to do on today's episode. Yeah, sure. So uh, I'm a first-year master's student at uh, Western University's History Department, and currently I am studying uh, Canadian telegraph operators. All right. So telegraph, why don't you sort of explain what that is? Yes, sure. So the telegraph is a technology that was very prevalent and commonly used in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Essentially what it is, is a device of electronic communications. You can think of it as a like a Victorian internet, uh, a large uh, communication network. And telegraph operators were basically the people who worked on that communications network to send messages out. So when we're speaking about telegraph messages, telegraph operators, what would be an example of uh, something that somebody would send? Oh, uh, so, I mean, you could send almost anything. So uh, business news, uh, general interest news, political news. Um, most of it's news. But you can also send personal correspondence as well. So this is something that people in their houses every day would, would communicate with each other? Or would it be more access mm-hmm. would be restricted to the higher classes potentially? So it's, it's not a, like a home technology, like a telephone. Sure, okay. Uh, a telegraph was something that would be found in like an office, say downtown. Okay. So there would be a telegraph office, which the wires would go into, and someone would have to either walk to the office to write a message to send. Sure. Or uh, call a telegraph messenger boy to come to your house, receive your message, walk it to the office for you, and then an operator would have to send that message to another office, say... um, in the same town, in the same city, or in another town or city farther away, and then they would receive it, transcribe it from Morse code into a written word. Okay. And then they would give that message to another telegraph messenger boy, who would deliver that to the person who was supposed to receive it. Geez, it almost sounds like it'd be easier just to send a postcard in some <laughs> cases. But but you mentioned Morse code, so that would be one example of, I guess, the languages that that would be used through this. Yeah. So across the wire, I mean, you can't. Uh, with telegraph wire, you can't speak over it. You have to sort of find a way to use electrical signals to communicate the, uh, your message. So, you, uh, you know, when I picture telegraph and Morse code, um, you know, I think of spy movies, I think of Western movies, you know, someone receiving the message in a saloon of some sort, um, noir movies. Uh, what... Uh, or were they actually used in those cases? Like, I, I know that, for example, were, were they not heavily used in World War One, for example? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you're pretty much right. And I mean, like, there's a reason why we associate these sorts of things with those popular culture images, because, you know, they were popularly used in, like, 1920 cities to communicate messages, <clears throat> communicate messages far away, or uh, in Westerns to communicate messages to the distant frontier, or in World War one film, say, for example, to communicate political messages, uh, tactical information, things like that. So I guess on the note of my 
uh, my primary experience with seeing Morse code or this kind of transcription uh, being used in film and, and such would be, like like Nick said, uh, war films. And I'm curious, mm-hmm. uh, the transcription and the tactical styling of it, was this Morse code or other languages, were they widely used or were they almost um, secret and, and almost just used between certain allied forces, for example? Mm-hmm. To so Morse code is the most commonly used code system. It's so commonly used, it's basically like you're speaking English over the wire. Okay. Like unedited, regular old English. So most people so, can understand it. Yeah, if you if you know anything about the telegraph technology, which most militaries would, uh, you would pick it up instantly. Huh, like okay. it was just normal conversation. It would be like you're eavesdropping on someone and that's it. What you would do if you were a military or a government or even a corporation that's trying to hide corporate secrets or business secrets, you would codify Morse code. Okay. So you would uh, say, uh, let's say I was a business and I was trying to tell you to uh, sell stock, for example. Sure. And I want to communicate that covertly because I don't want to let everyone know. If I want to communicate that covertly, I might send a message that would be something like, cut the wheat. Like, that doesn't mean anything. Okay. But because you have a code book or your own code, you can open that up and see uh, what does cut the cut the wheat mean in this telegraph morse code message well it means sell stock so i'll sell stock interesting so there, there was almost like a secondary language or a mm-hmm. modified language a codified language like you said yeah so um it was actually so common that people would actually make code books for telegraph messages so people uh even just ordinary customers would buy a code book so that they could send a message across the wire Secretly, um, that was wow. so in spy terminology. That's like the encryption key, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, an encryption key. Yeah, yeah, is that like the Enigma machine, famously? Yeah. So the Enigma machine, Enigma machine, was used to encrypt telegraph messages uh, during World War Two. Very cool. And how did this Enigma machine work? Uh, well, the Enigma machine isn't really like a uh, a focus of, of mine. Um, but just from my own like general knowledge, sure. it would work by just completely scrambling a message. So all the letters and whatnot would be all mixed up. So it's kind of like um, like a like an anagram mm-hmm. um, to use a simple example. Uh, but they would use that for a whole message. So it would be almost impossible to decipher where all the letters were supposed to go. Reconstruct it yeah. together unless you were the intended recipient. Yeah, or you had the actual code of how the encryption works. Wow. So which inc- is what the whole process of getting the encryption machine was. So I guess encryption is a very, very old technology then. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, encryption is um, it's pretty much as old as communication. <laughs> But I guess going or moving more closely to your mm-hmm. research, uh, your, your research topic within the I guess area of te- telegraph or telegraphy. Oh uh, yeah, so telegraphy. Uh, I'll make the distinction I guess real quick is that the telegraph is basically the technology. Okay. And uh, telegraphy or um, telegraphy. Okay. However, you either either or is fine. <laughs> um, is essentially the practice of communicating with the telegraph. So I you see. Could think of like. Paper's the technology, paper and pencil are the technology, <sighs> and the act of writing is is how you interface with it, how you communicate with it. Ah, I see. So maybe that's uh, you. You mentioned that you were looking more at the the telegraph operators. Mm-hmm. And, and so would they play a role in uh, how the messages were transcribed or how they were communicated? And yeah. what, what aspects are you looking at with that? 
So uh, I talk a lot about in my writing about the idea of uh, telegraph culture. So I argue that telegraph operators had their own culture that was specific for their own profession. So asking a question like, um, how did they do it, is, is a big focus of mine. And one of the things I found is that telegraph operators had ways that they could identify each other without even seeing each other and without being told who they were. So apparently, if you were sending with Morse code, using a Morse code key, basically the device that you use to send it. Uh, telegraph operators had what's known as a fist, is what they called it. Okay. Essentially, uh, it's like your accent. You have a specific way of sending Morse key, or Morse, Morse code over the technology that is detectable, like the cadence of your voice or the accent in your voice. Or a handwritten style. Or, or, or your handwritten style, yeah. Sure. Okay, I want to go into that. So we, we so Morse code is, from what I know, it's just like dots and dashes, mm -hmm. like not in reality, but just the sound is longer or shorter, and you right. combine those. So you mean to telling me that like different people would have, have different sort of spaces in between, or like what is that yeah. fist then? Yeah, so the fist could translate to... Um, habits of sending. Apparently, um, for example, uh, apparently men, male telegraphers could instantly tell if they were talking to a woman by the daintiness of their sending, whereas men would apparently pound it out Smash and the aggressively <laughs> send. That is incredible. Of course, there's hilarious, like popular fictional stories about men who think that it's a woman and are mistaken when right. they, and very embarrassed when they find out <laughs> that the person they're flirting with over the wire <laughs> is actually a man, or vice versa, where they think the oh code that's God. being sent to them is so aggressive and you know manly that they think it's a, another man sending it to them. And to their surprise, when they visit the office, they realize it's a woman. But this sort of aggressiveness you're talking about is not in what they're actually saying, but in no. the... And just like the button presses itself. Yeah, basically just in the way that they press down on the on the Morse key, and the. So I mean, obviously it's in it's in how they press it, but it's in like their speed and their tempo, their rhythm, all those sorts of things. So I I actually have a Morse key uh, with me right now. Yeah, we um, want to see a demonstration of your. Morse code fist, I guess. Yeah, yeah I, mean, <laughs> I mean, why not? Uh, I've, I've been practicing for uh, the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. uh, I've mostly memorized the code, so I'll send out just a, uh, a short greeting. Well, so before you do that, Michael, we're going to take a picture for oh, people who are, for, who are downloading online. But for those who are um, listening on the radio, uh, can you describe sort of the machine that's in front of you right now? Yeah, sure. I can describe this um, Apparatus. So this was one that I, I bought at a, a flea market. It's not uh, period accurate to what I study. This is not an early, tw uh, ninth, uh, early 20th century or late 19th century device. This is roughly from uh, like Cold War era, 1980s, 1970s. Sure. And what's interesting about this device is it also has a built-in speaker with volume and tone controls. The main device that I'm going to be interfacing with is essentially just a lever uh, with a large button on top that I would push up and down. It's spring-loaded, so it will always jump back. And when I push down on this lever, it opens the circuit, or sorry, closes the circuit and completes it, and that electrical current run that runs through the current will um, 
go through this sort of box in the back, the speaker, okay. and will produce a noise. And Morse code is a series, like you said, of dots and dashes. So it's not literally dots and dashes. It's basically just how fast and how slowly do I open and close this electrical circuit. Hmm. So if somebody's very excited as they're typing out the code, mm -hmm. they might be going extremely fast. You can send it very fast, yeah. Interesting. So why don't you give us a little demonstration? Like, what does it sound like? Sure thing. Uh, I'll just send out a small little greeting. It, it, what was that there? <laughs> just, just a simple hello. Uh, okay, okay. That is so cool. So what else can you, like, write on there? Like, you've, you said you've been training for mm -hmm. for some time. Um, Do you like, want to write Gradcast for us? Oh, sure, I can try. Um, I'm not going to say it's going to be uh, <laughs> done quickly, <laughs> but it will be done. <laughs> okay. There you go. Thank you very much. That that's one for the record books right there, I think. That is definitely one for the record <laughs> books. One for the most Morse code record books. So how um, would you say that your fist comes across mm -hmm. uh, when you're typing on the Morse Morse code machine? So I mean, if I were talking to uh, or trying to talk to a, a late 19th or early 20th century telegraph operator uh, using a device like this, they would probably think I'm I'm an idiot <laughs> uh, <laughs> because I, I don't I don't do this for a, a daily job. So my fist would come across as probably slow sounding, unsure, um, muddy, all the like almost amateur in training relative to somebody who would do it for mm -hmm. their day job day in and day out. Of course, yeah. In fact, uh, telegraph operators regularly competed over how fast they could send because time's money, mm -hmm. and the faster uh. you send the message, the more bonus you'll get for your for your paycheck. And uh, the more messages that you can just process. And is there like a record for words per minute or letters per minute? or? So they will hold competitions, but like if you we ask me if, if there's a record, I don't know what the fastest is, but the average uh, that most telegraphers held themselves to was about 90 words per minute. Wow, that's incredible. So you can think about that like in terms of like typing that, speed. That's for literally in comparison to typing speed, yeah. Yeah. I think actually many people would type slower yeah, than that, right? Yeah, I don't think I could type that fast. Yeah, damn. yeah. Sixty to <laughs> sixty was acceptable for beginners. Okay, ninety <laughs> if you were a pro. I'm going to stick to typing. Yeah, How about that. Um, so you know, thank thank you so much for uh, doing this oh, demonstration. No but you're you're not only do you know Morse code, mm -hmm. you're studying the history of telegraph users. What's your sort of focus of that? Right. So obviously, like you said, I'm, I'm studying the actual operators themselves, the people who worked in this network and operated these machines. And my main focus is, in general, it's a kind of labor history, but I'm also trying to focus on issues regarding gender and technology, because their work in interface with technology all the time. And um, this might not be well known, but a good percentage of telegraph operators in North America were actually women. Mm -hmm. So it was one of the few jobs in the late 19th and early 20th century that women could even work in. Mm -hmm. So I'm incredibly fascinated by the intersections of how 
communications, labor, technology, and gender actually fit together. Were you focusing on a specific country in North America? Um, for my master's, for my first year's master's, I'm just doing Canada. Okay. Um, okay. There's already actually been like quite a bit of written material on American telegraphers already, but there's been almost nothing written in the Canadian context, which mm -hmm. I think is surprising considering that both the American and Canadian industry are so similar, and there's a quite a large wealth of source material in Canada that I can use that hasn't been used at all yet. Wow. So, um, so how did you get into um, sort of looking at telegraph users uh, in different historical time periods? Oh, so uh, like I said um, before, I got into telegraph history back in my undergrad. In my second year, I, I had to write a book review for like an East Asian history survey course. And I just picked sort of at random a Japanese history book on titled Telegraphic Imperialism. And I got super into the idea of how the telegraph could be used as a tool for imperial conquest and imperial uses. And in my fourth year, I expanded on that a little bit more. But instead of focusing on Japan, I was focusing on British India. And when I was doing that, I got more interested in the idea of the individuals who make and work large communication networks like the telegraph. And I was wondering, you know, what's, what's Canada's story in, in this field? Why, uh, who are the people who are involved in Canada's telegraph industry, designing it, making it happen, working on it? And what, how are they, how are they viewed in society? That's kind of my questions going into it. So, so you brought up that a large proportion, or at least a, 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 a large, yeah, a large proportion of the telegraph operators mm -hmm. in Canada back in the day were were female. Mm -hmm. um, I'm curious because uh, you know today the technological industry is, I guess, uh, there, there is a gender disparity. It's majority mm -hmm. men for the most part. I'm curious if uh, back in the uh, late 19th, early 20th, early 20th century, was there that same, I guess, view uh, across the genders in, in terms of uh, male versus female working mm -hmm. within that industry? Yeah, of course. So even though there were, were women and men working pretty much the same job, uh, women who worked in the industry were viewed very differently. Uh, for example, women had to work on different machines. And this is where I'm, I'm hoping, it's not quite there yet, but I'm hoping by the end of my project I can develop this idea more, okay. the, the connection between gender labor and the technology. Okay. Um, so the men, for example, would be working on a technology like the one I just used, okay. a Morse code, a Morse telegraph key. Very simple technology, but requires a lot of dexterity, fast use, skill, knowledge, that sort of thing. A woman would just be working on, usually, an automatic machine. So what these automatic machines did was you would just feed tape into it, and it would be sent over the wire that way. So it really didn't require a whole lot of uh, fast, dexterous, quick-on-your-feet thinking, supposedly, that uh, Morse code key would. Sure. It was more preparation? Yeah, it took more preparation. And in many cases, these machines just required oversight. So, so would they sort of like... Would they sort of like take a long sort of piece of like tape or something and mm -hmm. punch 
holes and dashes in it right. beforehand? So, yeah. So they would oh, punch holes okay. uh, in it based on Morse code, feed it into a machine. Right. Got and it. then it would be sent over the wire to a, a receiving machine. So their fist then would mm-hmm. be more determined by how they cut the wire, or how they cut the film or the tape, mm-hmm. rather because they didn't actually press on the machine itself to uh, Well, that's the that. thing, and this is why I think it's actually kind of interesting, is that I feel like women who were working automatic machines were almost rendered um, invisible mm-hmm. or mechanical because uh, their, their fist doesn't exist almost. It's being manufactured to fit a machine rather than being this almost expression of like the individual. Sure, it would be, I guess, the equivalent of hearing um, an AI voice commentating over a video or something. That's a good comparison, yeah. So how did that, like, how did that sort of happen? Was it just like that, uh, you know, society sort of viewed women as not as dexteral or was that just something that women decided to do? Like, Mm -hmm. so, when it comes to uh, the history of, of women and work, especially in uh, industrializing countries, uh, the big shift is obviously they're moving from a largely domestic workspace. Because prior to this, most women's work was in a home. Uh, and then they're moving into a industrial space, or in this case, an office space. And their office space is viewed as almost as uh, patriarchal and divided as a factory space would be. That's what I found from my research, at least. And what I find interesting is that they had different definitions of how women, uh, women's skill functioned. So in this case, um, with the telegraph, women were not viewed as skilled at managing a device like a Morse key than a automatic machine. So where, I guess, would uh, a telegraph operator sit within the cultural hierarchy? And Mm -hmm. would, I guess, uh, males and females differ because of the amount of work or skill that was involved in their occupation? Yeah, so that's actually, like, been a big focus of my research, just trying to figure out where they sit in society. So part of my big research questions is, are telegraph operators seen as a working-class tradesman or a white-collar professional. Okay. And what I've come to the conclusion is that, and this is my main argument, is that telegraph operators are somewhere in between both those extremes. They're somewhere in between like a blue-collar factory worker and a white-collar office worker. They're in this very ambiguous position. And women even more so, because women are caught between the uh, domestic world of private work private domestic work and the open world of of an office work of, of an office setting and there's a whole lot of reasons that I could go into to uh, explain this kind of like in between characteristic of their work and it comes down to if I were to generalize it uh, it comes down to sort of the 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 mythologized view of their work, the reality of their work, and the actual like labor struggles of their work. Okay. And, and what do you think would be the, I guess, uh, first of all, what would be an equivalent uh, job that you would put in between the blue and white collar workers? Uh, historically or currently or? Uh, either or both. Okay. Um, so I, I've used this example before to uh, explain 
to people who want to find some sort of like a modern equivalent for telegraph operators, and I think it works actually, okay. is the idea of um, server admins or system admins, people who work at keeping internet networks mm-hmm. open and accessible and running functionally. Telegraph operators are pretty similar. They're, they're the people who are making sure your messages are going through in a uh, in historically. Yeah. So extremely important, but possibly undervalued. Yeah, I think they're extremely over important, but usually overlooked, undervalued, um, just unnoticed most most of the time. If everything's running well. Yeah, if everything's running well, <laughs> uh, the actual labor behind all these all these systems is completely invisible. Yeah. Right. Uh, and I'm arguing that that's yeah. that's today too. Like huh. this is this problem hasn't gone away. I mean, the people who work on internet servers or telephone networks or um, wireless networks, they're totally invisible. Even the people who make sure your social media feeds are clean and proper are also completely invisible. Mm-hmm. So communications workers are still pretty mm-hmm. forgotten. So we're, we're running out of time here. We, we have a few minutes left. I just want to ask one more question, which is, um, what can you tell us about sort of the unique Canadian experience of telegraphy at that time? Mm-hmm. So what I actually think is in terms of uh, unique Canadianness of this of this story is its connection with the United States, actually. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, Canada and the United States uh, during this period, they see a lot of labor comp- cooperation, especially in the telegraph industry. Uh, the two major strikes that occurred uh, in the telegraph industry, one in 1883 and one in 1907, were both cross-border. So these... and. I think uh, it's a big part of this co- cross-border cooperation is the fact that their networks are cross-border. Mm-hmm. They're these large, expansive communication networks. They're not just like localized uh, factories. Mm-hmm. Uh, a Canadian operator can easily uh, recognize and know of possibly American telegraph operators, that you have the exact same shared labor experiences of overcrowded offices that are poorly ventilated and unhygienic, and you get you know, terrible pay, uh, you're harassed to make more money by sending faster all the time. All these are shared experiences that are occurring in the United States and in Canada. And really, they don't share that experience with anyone else in the world. Well, Michael, th- I could talk, we could talk about this for hours, I'm sure. <laughs> but we are sadly here at the end of the episode. Um, thank you so much for being here. Oh, no problem. It was great to be here. It's been a great pleasure. If anyone uh, who's listening would like to um, get a hold of you, is there any sort of contact uh, information that you could share? Yeah, so uh, my name is Michael Fagan. You can contact me over email through my UWO email. It's mfagan, uh, M-F-E-A-G-A-N, at uwo.ca. You can also find me on uh, Twitter and Facebook. And uh, if you have any emails or questions that you want to send my way, feel free. Thank you so much. So you have been listening to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. You can listen to us uh, on air at 6 p.m. on Tuesday evenings on CHRW 94.9. If you'd like to hear all past episodes, you can visit our website at gradcast.ca or Gradcast Radio on whatever radio and streaming services, you know, iTunes, um, Spotify, anything like that. And if you'd like to be on the show or contact us, you can uh, email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com 
or visit us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at Gradcast Radio. Uh, thank you so much for listening, everyone. Uh, I've been Nick. And my name's Roger. And have a great evening. The Gradcast theme tune has been composed for us by Matthew Becker.